So please let yourself come back in and sit at ease. Such a nice summer evening out there, we could almost go sit in the meadow. As people come back in, the last ones, um, a couple of other retreat announcements just to let people know. Um, in August, we will have an African-American Dharma retreat and conference in for five days in mid-August, and a retreat for people of color. And the African-American Dharma retreat and conferences, I think the first time um, that teachers from the three major traditions of Vajrayana and Zen and Theravada practice, who are all um, African-Americans, will come together. It'll probably be full, I think, from, from what I'm hearing. And um, so that's a, that's a wonderful event. And there's also a retreat I'm doing in August with Maladoma Somme and Michael Mead, Luis Rodriguez, and others um, for men in Mendocino a retreat for younger and older men called Weaving a Path in the World. It's a combination of ritual and song and uh, community making and a little bit of meditation and um, some initiatory practices. Quite wonderful. Also, there's a, a retreat in, Ju- in July with Sylvia Borstein and others on loving-kindness meditation for about a week. Um, starts July 12th, and then retreats in August with uh, Philip Moffat and a variety of other teachers. So, Thank you all also for um, braving the um, water main <laughs> traffic. There was a major water main break near um, the hub in San Anselmo along Sir Francis Drake Boulevard and a lot of traffic had to wait for a good part of an hour to go around and come up here. So your perseverance is appreciated. Over the course of this summer beginning a few weeks ago Um, We've begun again to work with a cycle of Buddhist teachings called the uh, perfections of the heart or the qualities of our Buddha nature. And in many of the Buddhist texts that begin with the words, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, Do not forget who you really are. Remember your true nature. And these qualities, these ten perfections or aspects of our own Buddha nature, our own true heart, are described so that we can remember this innate nobility, that we can also understand within ourselves again what it is that truly makes us happy. The first couple of weeks of this set of teachings, we began with the uh, quality of generosity and the joy and happiness that comes from 
a generosity of heart and generosity of spirit. And then the second week, the quality of heart was the quality of a virtuous heart, of our integrity. And all of these are the greatness of our heart when it manifests in the world as our own Buddha nature. Tonight, the third of these aspects of our own Buddha nature, of what leads us to live from a greatness of heart, is the quality that in Sanskrit or Pali is called nekama, which means renunciation. The capacity for renunciation is what makes us wise. It's a bit hard to understand renunciation in a society that teaches that accumulation is happiness, isn't it? And if we look around, we have the illusion of choice. That is, there are 24 kinds of mustard, you know, for sale in Safeway. There might only be one, you know, one telecom company left when it all boils down, maybe one HMO, you know, but you can choose what color mustard and kind you want, you know, and and there are 40,000 forms of toothpaste that you can pick from, all, of course, produced by only one or two companies. So there's this illusion of choice, along with the notion somehow that getting more things and possessing more is what will make us happy. Yet there's that poem from Basho, great Zen master and poet, who wrote, even in Kyoto, most beautiful sacred city of Japan, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. So even being in the place where I long to be, I forget that I'm there already and I think, oh, I want to be in Kyoto. And then, of course, the cuckoo cries. Now, one of the most ancient images of renunciation are the monks and the nuns of the Buddhist order, the yogis in caves. And in truth, we all know this heart of wisdom that is your birthright knows the joy of simplicity. When you go camping and there is no phone and no fax and no timetable and you're just up in the Sierras or walking on a trail along the coast, there's a kind of happiness that comes not by what we have, but just by our sheer being. For each of these qualities of heart, of simplicity, generosity, integrity, and so forth, there are a series of stories that are told of the Buddha's former lives. In this tale of uh, generosity, there's a story of the Buddha offering himself to a to a mother tiger who was injured and unable to provide food for her baby so that she could 
feed her children. Um, they're all excessive tales. Um, and the tale that I'd like to speak of now, tonight, could perhaps best be called The Buddha Who Failed, or The Buddha Who Gave Away Too Much. <coughs> it's a very interesting Jataka tale. Because it tells of the Bodhisattva, or great being, who had vowed to become a fully awakened Buddha, this Bodhisattva, who was born somewhere near Benares a long time ago in India in a royal family and became king of a particular kingdom there. And the joy that he had more than any was renunciation, which is difficult for a king because you have all this stuff and all these things and palaces and responsibility and ministers and, and uh, um, armies and treasury. And the thing that made him the happiest was giving it away. So as a king, he was very generous and he began to make sure to care for the poor and care for the animals of the kingdom and care for those in need and those who are sick and, and so forth. And word got around that he was really generous. And then a kingdom nearby that was very, um, that had a drought and was quite poor sent a delegation to this king. Please give us of your, of your best. And he went to the treasury and he gave them cartloads of jewels and the best in the kingdom. The people were really alarmed. Our king is giving everything away. And then people from another kingdom came and he gave more away. And then those um, in the kingdom who were afraid he was going to give everything away, they lined up and said, well, give me my share. And um, the king, meanwhile, would go home every night and sit and meditate and smile and say, what a great day. I gave stuff away. I renounced today. And that's what made him happy. And finally, one of the princes from another line in the family there said, well, you're giving everything away. How about giving the throne to me? And the king said, why, certainly. This was his nature. And so he gave away everything, including his palaces and throne, and therefore the king and the queen and his two children um, had to leave, and they wandered out into the Himalayas, into the mountains. And the king said, then we will live simply as hermits. And they found some little hut out in the woods, as this story is told, having given everything away. And they were living in the hut um, with very, very few things, and some very poor hunter came by, and the king gave away the last of what they had, and then, as, as told in these tales, the throne of the king of the gods began to get hot, uh, his seat. And it's said that the throne of the king of the gods becomes hot when something happens down on earth that is remarkable or miraculous. And so the king of the gods looked over and saw, oh, my heavens, here is a being whose great joy is to renounce all things and give them away. But I'm afraid he will go too far. And sure enough, his reputation still having spread, oh, the hermit who had been the king who gives everything away, there was a poor Brahmin farmer, or poor farmer of some kind, near in the kingdom nearby those mountains. And he said, I have to work too hard in my fields and taking care of my family, and it certainly would be good if I had children or people to come and work for me. 
And so he said, I, he, I heard about this generous king, I will go to him. And he went back to the hermitage, and sure enough, he paid his respects and was fed from the little food they had. And he said, I work so hard, and I have this farm, and I have no one to help me, and would you offer your children? This is why it's the Buddha who gave too much, or failed, if you will. And this Bodhisattva said, I will, and offered his son and his daughter to work for and be the servants of this Brahman. Um, the queen was away at that moment. And <laughs> came back and was, um, was very upset. And the king sat her down um, and wept with her and said, the only joy that I find in this life is to give away that which is never truly belonged to me anyway. The things that you've had, they you cannot keep. But by renouncing them, you get the joy that can never be taken from you. And so, dear wife, we are serving the world in the highest way of the heart by even allowing our children to be taken. Well, the gods had come down to watch this and um, decided this was going a little bit too far. And so they sent some angels to protect the children, which they did in that part of the story. But then um, word got about um, that the king who gave everything away was there living with his queen, and the chief of the gods became afraid that the king would give away the queen as well. And so he came in the guise of a beggar who said, I have no one to cook and care for me, and my life is so difficult, and you who are so generous and have given everything, would you not also give of your wife, the queen? And the king looked at her, and she smiled at him, and he said, I will do so and put her in the care of uh, the gods. This was the test of the gods, if you will. At which point, uh, Saka, the king of gods, burst into uh, appearance of light and radiance and said, you have given me the queen, and now I give her back to you, and I give you to her that you may never give one another away again. And I have come as a protection follow me, and they followed him back to the farm of the Brahmin and where the children had protect, been protected, and he brought the children back to the king and queen and gave whatever the farmer had needed, and then led them back to the kingdom um, where uh, those who had been his subjects welcomed him back with the gods in the lead as the greatest of the kings that they had ever um, that they had ever seen, and he was reuni reunited with everyone, and it ended happily ever after, more or less. <laughs> but it is also taught as the Buddha who failed, um, because it was a little bit off the middle path, yes? <laughs> and so he didn't become a Buddha in that life. He was a great being, a bodhisattva, a being of great compassion, but he didn't really manifest that wisdom of the heart that we know in ourselves is truly wise. Even though the story is extreme, 
It makes you think. It's meant to, as a myth or a story. What does it mean to truly renounce? And what is it that brings us happiness? Is this what's necessary for our liberation? To give everything away? Now, any of you who've been a parent will know that there are certain moments where giving your children away has actually seemed like a rather um, interesting possibility. Those moments, but that's not what the story is about. We are in an interesting dilemma. We are Buddhists and we are householders. What does that mean? What does renunciation, the great heart of renunciation, mean to us? Most fundamentally, it means not possessing, attaching, owning, worrying about things as if they were what makes the heart happy. And by not attaching and owning and worrying and possessing, I don't mean that we will not have things or that we don't have to commit ourselves to care for the things that are in our circumstance. What I mean is the extent of our attachment and our wanting and our holding and our fear of loss, of our unwise grasping, will be the extent of our suffering and bondage. It will cloud the mind and close the heart and create suffering. It is said, as you know in the biblical phrase, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven, or some similar translations to that. Now, one biblical scholar who I know, um, who's really studied this, discovered that there was a small stone gate in the walls of Jerusalem, a very small gate, that was known as the Eye of the Needle. That's where the saying comes from. And a camel couldn't fit through. Even somebody carrying a great deal of things with them couldn't fit through the gate. The only way you could get through the gate, this small stone gate, was leaving your luggage behind. So that's the original meaning of that teaching. I remember being on the coast of Maine, this incredible um, pounding ocean and great big um, formations of rocks. It's beautiful, beautiful coast. And we took one little road that went um, to this area of the coast near where we were staying, and the road dead-ended just before the beach. There was this huge jumble of stone, and there was a sign at the end that had arrows in two directions. In one direction it said rock, and in the other direction it said hard place. (laughs) It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. What it speaks of is the joy of renunciation, the heavenliness that comes from letting go. 
And the renunciation is not so much, I will impoverish myself. This was the failure of the Buddha, perhaps, in that story or the Bodhisattva. But it's rather a renunciation of trust, a kind of holy abundance that knows in this moment, in the reality of the present, with sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches, with thoughts and feelings, in this changing world, that what we truly long for, the root of happiness, we always have within us. In Zen, the saying is, how refreshing, the whinny of a pack horse unloaded of everything. What we have within us is emptiness, is a spaciousness of heart, an openness of mind that is always present. Even when we're in the middle of things and lost, one breath away, there is this sense of simple being and presence. And that's really all we have. Everything else changes all the time. But if we rest in this true nature, then there is joy and ease and abundance and a quality of blessedness. Peter Matheson. Eventually, the child's clear eye is clouded over by ideas and opinions, preconceptions and abstractions. Simple, free being becomes encrusted with a burdensome armor of self. Not until years later does an instinct come that some vital sense of mystery has been withdrawn. The sun glints through the pines, and the heart is pierced in a moment of beauty and strange pain, like a memory of paradise. And after that day, we become seekers of truth. And yet that truth we seek is who we really are. So renunciation, the greatness of heart, that knows that stuff, that things, that holding, is not what makes the deepest happiness. Renunciation of what? There's a physical renunciation, of course. Do you know the joy of clearing out the attic, the garage, the closets, of giving stuff away? Everybody's smiling when I say that. That's because your garages are full of stuff. We could have a phenomenal garage sale. (laughs) They have to write this kind of the Bodhisattva story of the great garage sale, right? (laughs) But there is such a happiness in letting go of things. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi wise man and holy fool. One day in his village, the tax collector came around and the stream um, nearby was quite high and he was trying to cross the stream into the village on the the stone bridge and he slipped off into the water and he was just holding on some way out and the villagers were trying to help him and they said, "Uh, give me your hand, give me your hand and you know, we'll pull you in. And he was just clinging to this rock and would not um, give his hand. And Nasruddin kind of made his way through the crowd and saw, oh, it's the tax collector. 
And he looked at him and he said, here, take my hand. And immediately the tax collector took his hand. He said, this is how you get the tax. You can't ask him to give you anything. You say, just take my hand. And that's the way you bring the tax collector back. There is such a happiness in not worrying about things. My colleague and friend Joseph Goldstein, when he practiced in India for some years in the temple in Bodhgaya, invited his mother to come over. She was, he was probably in his late 20s and she was maybe in her late 40s or around 50 and she'd grown up in um, upstate New York in a very kind of middle-class way. And here she was, she arrived in India, and when she finally got to this temple where he was staying in Bodhgaya, she was given the nice accommodations, which was this little stone hut with a cement floor, and one window with some bars on it, and, and, a, little, and a door, and a bed with a mattress, and he put some flowers in there and a chair, and tried to make it nice, a little Indian bedspread, and that was it. And she walked in, and she had this big house, you know, and the cars, and the sofas, and the curtains, and the, all the stuff that one has, and the kitchen full of appliances. And she said, this is it. He said, yes, Mom, this, I fixed it up for you, you know. <laughs> and she stayed there and learned from his teacher, who was a very charming and wonderful teacher, Anagarka Manindra, and meditated and spent time with her son. And by the end of being there for a month, she said when she came home that it had been the happiest time of her life. And she had so little. Joy and happiness of heart is not what we have or possess, but what we can share and open and let go. As Zen Master Ryokan my life may appear melancholy, but traveling through this world I entrust myself to heaven, in my sack three quarts of rice, by the hearth a bundle of firewood. If someone asks what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say. Wealth and honor are but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in answer. So simple. There's a wonderful book called Voluntary Simplicity written by Duane Elgin, a friend, Dharma friend. And in it he talks about simplicity not as some onerous task, but rather the pleasure of simplicity, of simplifying one's life, of living simply. Each day when you awaken in the monastery as a monk or a nun, Part of the morning chantment, chanting or enchanting, enchantment, is the four contentments in which one chants for the contentment for whatever food is given and the contentment for having a robe to cover the body and contentment for whatever shelter has been offered, a little hut, place under the trees, and contentment for what medicine is offered if one needs. And the basic reflection that comes 
is that these are all that are necessary to awaken. That these are the riches of this human existence that we might fully awaken compassion, loving kindness, and liberation of the heart for all. Eliminate something superfluous from your life. Break a habit. Do something that makes you feel insecure. It's good for you. (laughs) Carry out each action with complete attention and intensity as if it were your last. You might reflect as I speak on what is entrusted to you in this world. And can you hold it lightly? Because you don't own it. You're just the accountant in the firm. Um, I know accountants aren't doing so well these days, but in this case, the idea is that you are the steward of what is given to you, to care for in a wise way, but not to possess. What is it time to let go of, to pass on, to hold more lightly, to release? If you go to Gandhi's memorial along the river in outside of New Delhi in India, there's this huge green lawn, one of the ghats where Mahatma Gandhi's uh, cremation took place. And around this great green lawn is a kind of stone, a set of stone walls into which are carved some of the words, the eternal words of Gandhi. And the most central words in the memorial come from his lips. Before you act, especially, I think he says, if you are confused, before you act, think of the poorest person you have met and ask or consider if your next act will be a benefit to them. It's simple. Where we grasp and possess and worry and own in that way, we are neither at peace nor free. And since it all changes, guaranteed it will all change, guaranteed, we must discover the capacity to let go, to renounce, the generous and gracious heart that can move from one thing to another. This week, I've been reflecting about this because one good friend is involved in a major lawsuit that's frightened him about all the things that he's possessed of. And another good friend is talking to me about huge business losses. You know how it's going out there in some sectors of the economy. And what it means to stay centered in their heart in the midst of all these losses. They said to me, I'm so grateful for the treasure of my spiritual practice. Without it, I could not do this. And then I suppose I would 
like to offer the teachings tonight in particular and the chant that we do in the end um, as an honor, as a prayer for Natasha Luhan Isaacs, who was the six-year-old girl that drowned a few days ago in the pool in San Rafael. Many of you in Marin probably read about her and her parents, Ben and Michelle, um, because I've been spending some time with them over these days, and we'll probably do a memorial service here for her. Beautiful, beautiful, big-eyed, smiling, loving, six-year-old girl. And the question comes down to what really matters in this realm of human birth and human death. In Zen, it's called the great matter. Who are we really, and what makes us truly free? And so when the Buddha reminds us of renunciation, he speaks to that place of the deepest wisdom of the one who knows in us. Renunciation of things, because that's not what matters. And one thing I can say about Natasha, she was really loved by her parents. She was so cared for and loved by her mother and her father and this whole community of people around her so that they could look at me with tears in their eyes and say, she loved everyone and we loved her and we did our best. We really took care of her. We loved her. So there was no regret. And that is a true gift in this world. Renunciation of things. Renunciation also of the possession of others. People don't like to be possessed. Perhaps it's one way to understand the myth or the story that I told of the Buddha who failed. He had to finally give up renouncing his son and his daughter and acknowledge that they weren't his. Every parent has to learn this sooner or later. Every time my teenage daughter goes out in the evening, goodbye, Dad, I'll be back pretty late. Don't stay up. All I can do is pray. <laughs> to the extent that we possess and try to control our spouse or our lovers or our children, to that extent is their sorrow and struggle and suffering. What renunciation means is not that we don't care for them or commit ourselves. In the end, all we can do is love them. We renounce our grasping and control instead for the deepest love. Ursula Le Guin, who writes, It is a wondrous and terrible thing, this kindness that human beings do not lose. Terrible, because when we are finally naked in the dark and cold, 
It is all we have. We, who are so rich, so full of strength, wind up with that. Wondrous, because in the end we have nothing else to give. You'll notice if you reflect on the possession of others that we possess in two ways, grasping and aversion. The grasping, my lover, my wife or husband, my son, my daughter, my father, and they should be this way for me and stay this way and not change and not leave and not do this and not do that. You know that kind of attachment? Most of you experience? They are going to change. I mean, look at yourself, look at your own feelings and thoughts. Are you in control of them? Try to control another person. It doesn't work. Things do change, and yet we grasp. The art of renunciation is the letting go. I remember one day being with Zen Master Sansanim, Korean Roshi, and I had been with him the year before. We were at one of the temples that he had started. And a young man who was a a devotee of his for some years had fallen in love with this um, beautiful young woman who'd come newly to the community. And just before the Zen master had gone away on his travels, their relationship broke up. And the young man was heartbroken. This was the love of his life. He'd been with her for a couple of years, and they were going to live this life together. And then this woman left him, as happens, doesn't it, one way or another. And he was grieving and sad, and the Zen master was so compassionate and put his hand on his heart and held him and appreciated his tears. and then bid his adieu and went to travel and came back to the temple a year later and I happened to be there when the Zen master returned. And all the students greeted him and then he spent a little time with each and he spent time with this young man now a year later and the Zen master looked at him and said, how are you? And he said, oh, I'm still so sad. You know, it was such a big loss. I miss her so much and grieving. And he said, oh, I have a gift for you. And he looked in his bag and he pulled out this beautiful set of beads of Kuan Yin, of the goddess of mercy. And he said, here, put out your hands. The young man put out his two hands and Zen Master put the beads in the two hands and held them with one hand, his left hand. And then he reached back and he smacked this guy really, really hard across the face and shouted out, let her go! Really hit her, hit him hard. And I was just kind of, my jaw dropped. I said, whoa. And the guy's eyes grew wide. The Zen master bowed and walked away. And I said, well, that was something. And you know what? The next day, he stopped talking about her. He did it. I'm not, you know, I'm not, therapeutically, I'm not recommending this. It's got to be pretty clean. 
but it was kind of amazing because he spoke something in that moment that was true. So one way we possess is by grasping, attachment, which is different than love. And we can let go. And the other way that we possess is by our resistance, by our opinions and views about how it's supposed to be different than it is by our anger. Remember what Lao Tzu said, a philosopher is wedded to his opponent. That somehow the person that we're in conflict with, we cannot separate from our heart, really. And we have so many opinions, most of which are based on fear, if you look deeply in them. Not the opinions themselves, but the clinging to them is based on fear because most fundamentally we don't know. That was the teaching Ajahn Chah, my forest meditation master, used to give all the time. It's uncertain, isn't it? You have this opinion and that's okay, but it's really uncertain, isn't it? And then you have that view and that's uncertain as well. To renounce judgment there's a renunciation. To renounce grudges, to renounce anger, to renounce the carrying of our self-importance, which means to renounce being right. Would you rather be right or be happy, is the question. Because often that is, re- is, the, is the real human choice. When I look at the Middle East, and there's a certain way in which everybody's wrong, and there maybe is a certain way in which everybody's right, but nobody's letting go, and somebody has to actually be willing to let go of even being right to find peace. There's so much pain in carrying our opinions and our views, and our judgments of others in the way somebody else is supposed to be. Always I thought you alone were to blame, writes Ed Brown. This last instant my eyes open, and I regard you with all the tenderness and love I withheld for so long. To renounce being right, to renounce grasping, to renounce judgment of others. What a relationship to love somebody as they are, to breathe and just be. A friend of mine who is someone that has a very quick and fine mind but also can get angry and stuck and carry the anger, was on a vision quest some years ago, down by Four Corners, near Canyon de Chez. And he'd spent a week or ten days out, way in the wilderness, alone, sitting and walking the wilderness, and waiting for some vision, and nothing came. And he was getting more and more discouraged, and more and more kind of sorry that he'd gone on this vision quest and no visions happened, you know. I was waiting for this great vision. 
And finally, on the last day, he said, I went around a corner and I just sat down on this rock, feeling sorry for myself. No visions, nothing, you know, no inspiration. (laughs) And then I looked up and I saw some bones of an animal that had died. And I looked closely and it was the bones of a deer with its antlers. And then all of a sudden I looked more closely and I realized it was the bones of two deer. And it was two stags, actually. And the antlers were caught together. And they had, in their combat, locked antlers in such a way that they could never separate them. And then they had died. He said, I got my vision. Isn't that an image for us? So renunciation, the words from the Buddha, he beat me, look how he abused me, threw me down, robbed me. Continue such thoughts and you live in hate. He beat me, abused me, threw me down, robbed me. Abandon these thoughts, the past, and live again in love. For in this world, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. If we cannot let go and be happy, what use is this spiritual practice of ours? In this mystery, it's so short. We really don't know how long we have and how long those we love will be with us. It was so apparent and poignant in speaking with the parents of Natasha. What matters in the end? And what truly makes happiness? Renunciation of things, renunciation of possessing people, opinions, views. One more renunciation for us as householders. The renunciation of fear. The discovery of fearlessness. You remember that line from Mark Twain where he said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. If we look into fear, we discover it's always about what hasn't come yet. It's not about what's now. What's now can be terrible or painful or difficult to bear, but we're not afraid of that. We're afraid of what's going to happen next. That's the way it works. It's always a story. And what would it mean to release the small sense of self, the body of fear with its hopes and ambitions and ideas of failure and how we're supposed to be and how it's supposed to be. To release that, which thinks that the world can be controlled and possessed, and it can't. To release that 
and trust to live in the reality of the present with an open heart. As Kabir writes, we sense that there's some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, perhaps the same one who gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you would be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is you turned away yourself and now you are tangled up in others and have forgotten what you once knew. Kabir says, who are you really, wanderer? Why not remember today? It feels like we're an orphan sometimes, that we could lose everything, and we will, that things are to be feared, fear of pain, fear of change, fear of loss. But what is really true in us is timeless and unchanging and miraculous. And it is here in a moment. It is here in the silence that surrounds these words. And in the deep silence that surrounds all the feelings and thoughts of your life. And you know this as surely as you know your own name. The one who knows in you remembers that which is eternal. Like the baby in the womb in the Hindu story that cries, do not let me forget who I really am. And then the cry changes after birth. Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. Who are you born into this body? Oh, nobly born. Sons and daughters of the awakened ones. Do not wait until death to remember what really matters. But live with a fearlessness in yourself, in your relations with others, A holy relationship is a means of care, uh, is a means of saving time. A holy relationship is a means of saving time. One instant spent together in this way restores the universe. It doesn't take a long time to have a holy relationship with another a moment of seeing who we really are. Some people talk about finding God as if he could get lost, or as if we could get lost. And we do, but we always find our way back. From Krishnamurti, who says, to understand truth, one must have a clear, precise, open mind, not a cunning mind, but a mind that is capable of looking without distortion, a mind innocent and vulnerable 
and only such a mind can see what the truth is. Learning is a radical openness from moment to moment to moment. The great renunciation is the renunciation of the past and the future because they're never here. The future is an idea, the past is a memory, and what we have is open to the wind and sky, is this eternal present, the reality of the present, to trust, to let go in, to live in as a mystery. As Einstein says, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle, and the other is as though everything is a miracle. To renounce is really to renounce the small sense of self and to make of yourself a light, to move through the world with ease and grace, to live in the reality of the present, neither grasping nor fearing what is so. And each of these speaks to the truth of our heart, these perfections of what we already know. And yet each one can also be practiced. Generosity, the practice that I love in generosity, is that whenever the thought or impulse arises to do something generous, I just do it. I don't second guess it. I don't decide later, well, I'm not going to do it. It's just been a practice of mine that I started 15 or 20 years ago, that if I thought to give something or do something, I do it. And you know what? I never regret it. You don't regret it when you do something generous. Try it. The practice of integrity. Take one precept, non-harming other beings, not misusing or stealing things that belong to others, speaking only that which is true or useful, being truly conscious about your sexuality, or not intoxicating yourself in any way. That can be television, if that's your intoxicant, whatever it is, for a month. Pick one precept, not five of them. Try just one and really do it for a month. Then add another. See what happens. It makes the heart happy. And in renunciation, maybe for a month, just take inventory of what we try to possess that possesses us. What things we can give away to the poor or sell, release. What people we can release from our judgments and struggles like those two deer and their antlers together. What ideas and views you can release to rest in the mystery of things. These are the practices of the awakened heart. 
from Mary Oliver. Every morning I think of this as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness and send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet. I think of the Buddha. An old man, he lay down between two sal trees. He might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head and looked into the faces of that worried crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha. Make of yourself a lamp. He said this before he died. Let's sit for a moment. Let yourself live from that place of your deepest inner wisdom. It is only this that will make you truly happy. I'd like us to chant briefly before we go, to do this very simple chant with a bow inwardly of Namo. The word Namo, the root in Sanskrit, is the same root as the word Namaste in India when you greet someone and put your hands together. I honor the divine in you. I see you. I see who you really are behind everything. And so as we chant Namo and bow inwardly, I would ask that you offer a prayer for the spirit of Natasha Luhan Isaacs, six years old, that she might be well 
and at peace and free. And that you offer a prayer <clears throat> for her most loving parents, Ben and Michelle, and her friends and grandparents, and for all those who've lost loved ones. And for all beings in the world who struggle. May they all awaken to their own true nature. So let us chant Namo nine times and with it offer inwardly a bow and a prayer. Namo Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.